0: on earth, so that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online. I'm just so glad that you could join us this morning. It's a snowy day out there. It's cold, but there's a certain excitement in the air. Uh, my name is Sawyer Trapp, as Matt said. I'm our student ministries director here. So I get to, I get the amazing opportunity each week to uh, meet with our students, our sixth through, excuse me, 12th, seventh through 12th graders. And We have amazing games, Um, so if you have a student in that age group, quick plug before we get started, or if you know somebody, or if you are a 7th through 12th grader, we meet every Wednesday night um, right here, 6 to 8 p.m., so we'd love to see you there. Um, I have been on staff now for three-ish months, which is crazy. I felt like it's been such a whirlwind. It's gone so fast. Um, It's wonderful to have met you all, and it's wonderful now for the opportunity to be able to preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. But we're going to start off with a question, which is always a good way to start. So how many of you have siblings, a brother or a sister? Go ahead and raise your hands. So most of us do. How many are your only child? If you're an only child. So some, some only children out there, too, represent. I, I had one brother growing up. I still do, still have a brother. Um, he lives in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, but we're two years apart. And I don't know about you, but I think the closer you are in age the level of intensity between you escalates. So if if there's a difference between you, maybe you can be friends, you're maybe in different stages of life, but being two years apart, you're close enough in age, especially as you get older, you maybe have the same friends, you know, the same people. And so my brother and I fought a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I'm the older one. However, my younger brother, he's scrappy. He's a fighter. I would always be like, no, I'm not going to fight, whatever. But he's like, he would like punch me. I would always like just take it, whatever, Like be the passive one. But what my parents would do time after time again is they would force us to say that we're sorry. Have you ever experienced that? Where you just get done fighting, like your emotions are still invested in the situation. You're still mad. You're still upset. And then your parents come up and make you Apologize and so you you quick mumble under your I'm sorry whatever and then my parents would do it one step further i don't know about yours whether they did this growing up or not they would make us hug they would make us hug so it was literally like the shortest hug that you've ever seen it was literally like that's it like and that and that counted and i don't know if you've seen this but some parents are now choosing this as their method of discipline so we want to pull that up our get along shirt so presumably, they're in a situation, they're argument, and you know what? If you, if you want to spend that much time running on each other, we're going to put you in a large, extra large shirt, and you're going to hang out for the rest of the day, and you're going to get along. But the sad thing is, is that we often, after we move out of the house, or after we turn 18 and start to live our lives, is that we don't have somebody in our life anymore telling us to say that we're Sorry. We don't have anybody in our lives anymore. We're we're in control of our own destiny. Whether we're gonna forgive, whether we're gonna hold on to grudges, how we're gonna live our life is up to us. And so throughout this sermon this morning, I want you to think. I want you to think of one person in your life. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have one person in our life that we need to forgive. Maybe it was you and your spouse on the on the right here this morning. There's snow, they're stressful. There might have been some choice words said even on the way to church, or maybe it's someone from your past, someone when you were a child that hurt you, that made you feel less than whoever that person is in your life. I want you to think about that person this whole sm- this whole morning, as we look in the life of Joseph. Because Joseph had lived a pretty amazing life at this point. If you, if you joined us over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Joseph go from a favorite son of his father to being sold into slavery, to being almost killed, to being ruler over an Egyptian's house, to once again being tossed into prison after issues and accusations of sexual harassment, to once again being lifted up where he's the ruler of the entire prison, interpreting dreams of the cup bearer and the baker of Pharaoh. And at last week, coming to Pharaoh and interpreting the dream of the ruler over Egypt to a point where he was not only the dream interpreter, but he becomes second in command over all of Egypt. One of the most powerful lands of that time. He was second in command. He could do whatever he wanted. He has a wife. He has children. Life is going amazing for him. He's ruling over this large government bureaucracy. They're saving up food, collecting food, and then the famine begins. And people start to come to get food from Egypt. As they run out, as the harvest becomes less and less and less, Egypt becomes the only option that they can turn to. The only place where they can actually find food in a famine that they know is going to be going on for years And that's where the situation completely changes for Joseph. Because one of those families that comes is his own brothers. The brothers that had sold him into slavery, that had started his trajectory of life, a life that he never would have imagined for himself. And yet he's in a place now where he's the one with the power. And that's going to all change when he's put face to face with the people he has yet to forgive. So we're going to jump in. We are in Genesis 42. we got a lot to cover this morning. Matt has only been doing like a chapter or two. We are doing four this morning. So put, strap on your seatbelts, buckle up, because it's going to be a ride. So we are in Genesis 42, and it starts off like this. When Jacob had learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking around at each other? He continued... I have heard that there's grain down in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So we're jumping back in with Joseph's family here, there in Canaan. And Jacob, the father, tells all of the other brothers, the other ten, eleven 11 brothers, to say, Yeah, what are you doing? You're just standing around. We don't have any food. You need to go down to Egypt. So he sends them, but that last verse is important. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Now Benjamin is kind of a new character to this story. We haven't heard about him in, in the previous chapters, but Benjamin was the actual blood brother of Joseph from Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. So they were all kind of stepbrothers, they all had different mothers, but this was Joseph's actual brother. Benjamin had been born while Joseph had gone on this amazing journey in Egypt. Benjamin now at this point is roughly about 16, 17, maybe maybe early 20s, around the same age that Joseph was when he was sold into slavery. And so you can see Jacob has not come to terms with the loss of his favorite son. My wife is a therapist, and so she has studied a lot of counseling terms, and there's this idea of projection. It's that we can't deal with our emotions, and so we project them onto other people. And I think that's what Jacob doing in this situation, is he hasn't come to terms with the loss of his favorite son, and so now he's holding Benjamin, his youngest son, even tighter. Nothing's going to happen to him, so he does not send Benjamin. So the other brothers go, They take that long journey down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, they're confronted by their brother. Can you imagine what that situation was like for Joseph? Joseph, who is now in a position of power. He's named one of his sons. The meaning is basically that God has allowed me to forget. Joseph has moved past. He's running this government bureaucracy. He has a family. Life is going well for him. And then he's brought face to face. To his brothers, the people who had hurt him so much. But they don't recognize him. The Bible makes this interesting wordplay where they don't recognize him. Excuse me, Joseph recognizes them, but he makes himself unrecognizable. Last week we learned that when Joseph was brought to Pharaoh, they had him basically completely shaved. He had no facial hair. He was probably bald. He had probably given that Egyptian makeup or we see in the hieroglyphics, that deep eyeliner. He looks completely different, let alone that the last time they saw him, he was a teenager and now he's almost 40. Now, obviously your facial structure is about the same, but you look completely different than you do as a teenager than you do when you're 40. He looks completely different and so his brothers don't recognize him. But Joseph knows right off the bat who's in front of him. And thus begins the interesting saga of Joseph and his brothers. What Joseph starts off with is he starts accusing them. He interviews them. He interrogates them. He brings out that big light, basically, you see in the movies. It's in a dark room. Joseph is there and he puts that light on him and said, why are you doing it? What are you doing here? He's trying to figure out what his brothers are doing. And his brothers have no idea. They're just like, you know, we just need food. We're hungry. Our dad sent us. Joseph responds by accusing them to be spies accusing them of trying to find weak points in the Egyptian government to try and infiltrate. And the brothers are once again like, they don't even know what's happening. They're, they just came to get food and now they're being accused of espionage. This has been an interesting turn of events for their brothers. They, they just thought it would be easy. They go down, pay the money, get some food. But now it turns into a full-on interrogation. And in fact, Joseph is now playing out the pain that he's experienced with his brothers. Just like Joseph was accused of spying on his brothers when his father sends them down when they're watching the flocks, he accuses his brothers of being spies. And just like Joseph felt that he had done nothing wrong, his brothers now experience what it feels like to be accused when you feel like you haven't done anything wrong. And isn't that true with us too? Because when we've been hurt, when we experience pain, we often play that out in our lives too. What has been done to us becomes the way we see the world, becomes the lenses that we view our lives and view others. And Joseph, like any other person, is doing the same thing. And so after accusing them of being spies, he throws them into prison for three days, much like the own prison sentence he had experienced for years at this point. And after three days, he brings them out and decides that he's going to send them with grain. But only if, only if they promise that when they return, when they need more food, that they'll bring the youngest, Benjamin. You see, Joseph, in that interrogation, had learned that his father was still alive, that he now had a very own brother that he's never met. And what Joseph is trying to do is to evaluate, to test, to see if his brothers have changed. And so he sends them out, he sends them with food, He actually returns their money to him and tells them they can only come back if they bring Benjamin, the youngest, and prove that they're not spies by verifying their story. And you got to think about what it was like for the brothers. They had taken this long trek to Egypt, this long journey. They didn't have cars. They're walking. They may have have had a couple of animals to ride, but this is a long journey. And when they get there. They face accusations of espionage. And then halfway on the way back to Canaan, they realize that the money that they thought they had paid had been returned to them. You got to think about what that, what is like, because if they found out that they had their money and they try and go back to get more food, they're going to get thrown into jail. They're going to be accused of stealing, accused of taking what's not theirs. And actually what's going to happen is they're going to live into the narrative that Joseph is trying to put upon them. But they realize right away what's happening. It says in that section right in the middle of 42 that what Joseph's brothers realize is that they're being punished for what they've done in the past. They realize that guilt comes up so quick for them. We never should have, did, we never should have done what we did. We never should have plotted to kill our brother. We never should have sold him into slavery. We never should have lied to our father for decades at this point that their own brother was dead. Because when we're on the other side of the coin, when we've done things to other people that have hurt them, that guilt comes in an instant. Whether it's been a day or years or decades, like in Joseph's brother's case, That guilt and pain comes back in every situation that reminds us of what we've done. And it's the same for Joseph's brothers. But time goes on. They get back to Canaan and they go back to their dad time and time again and say, Hey, dad, if we want to go get more food, we got to bring Benjamin. The man that we interacted with there wanted to know all about our family, accused us of being spies. We need to verify our story. We need to prove that they were not the men that he said we were. And Jacob, time and time again, says, no, I'm not going to let my son, my youngest son, go with you to get killed, to get lost, to get eaten up by an animal, as he believes happened to Joseph. But it's only when Judah, Judah steps up, pulls his dad aside, and allows himself to be offered in the place of Benjamin. Benjamin to verify that he is going to be the one that is going to personally take care of his father's new favorite son. It says in verse 9 of, verse four, of chapter 43 that Judah said to, his Israel, to Israel, Jacob's other name, to his father, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life. I will bear the blame before you all my life. And you might be saying, why is that significant? Why is it significant that Judah is the one that steps up, that offers himself in a place to take the place of Benjamin, to verify that he's going to be safe, that he's going to be secure? Because Judah... Judah was the one who originally suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery. All of the other brothers were plotting to kill him. They throw him in this cistern, in this deep pit, and they're going to kill him. But Judah, obviously the entrepreneur in the group, in the family, says, no, 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 we can make some money off this. Why are we going to kill him when we can sell him? We can make some money. We're going to sell him into slavery. Now, obviously, their father has no idea about this. But Judah knows Judah knows what he's done. And so this story, even though it's about Joseph, is also about his brothers and Judah, especially coming to terms with what they've done and trying to live their lives differently. So after continued pleading and prodding and going to their dad, it's finally in this final interaction with Judah where he promises to bear the blame for if anything happens to Benjamin Jacob finally allows them to go. He sends them off back to Egypt with the best that they have to offer. The best food. So what they do have, they don't have a lot of grain, which is what they were actually getting from Egypt, but they do have the best that they can offer. The land of Canaan, Israel today, is often called the land of milk and honey. And, and that's because it's an easy area to both develop milk, so to have cows, and also to develop honey, to have bees. And even at that time, he sends them off with the best they have to offer. So they're sent off with these jars of amazing honey, nuts, the best that they have to offer. And as they go back to Egypt, it's almost as if they become the caravan that originally took Joseph to Egypt in the first place. You see, God knows what he's doing in the midst of this narrative. The author of this in Genesis knows what he's writing And so there's an interplay between what Joseph has experienced in his life and what now his brothers are living out in their lives. They become the caravan of merchants that are now transporting the best that they have to offer to Egypt. And they also come back with the money. They they want to make sure that they're above board in every respect. They come back with the money. They come back with this extra um, goods and materials. And they return to Egypt with the most important thing, Benjamin. And so as Joseph sees them and sees them moving into the city, he would have been up on a hill and probably one of the palaces and so could see who was transporting in. But he sees. And so he sends his steward, one of his servants, out to greet them. And his brothers instantly think, oh, we should, never should have came. We never should have came. This steward of Joseph is coming out to see him, the steward of the second most important person in Egypt, this steward that could easily just kill us outright. But yet, that's not what happens. In fact, Joseph invites them to this amazing banquet. A banquet of food that they probably had never had before. A banquet of food in the midst of a famine. This would be like a Thanksgiving meal on steroids. They would He kills the fattened calf. He goes all out and invites them to this meal. And his brothers are dumbfounded. In their first interaction with this ruler over Egypt... He had accused them of espionage, of trying to be spies, of trying to rig the system, and now this same individual is showing them such kindness, such undeserved kindness. And I think it's because when Joseph sees his brother, sees his blood brother of the same, from the same mom. He's beside himself. The Bible says that he is so overcome with emotions that he has to recuse himself to the situation. He goes in his private room and just sobs at what he's missed out on. That's the side of his brother. And I think that's true with us as well. As we work through what it looks like to interact with the people that we need to forgive, emotions are going to bubble up to the surface. We may respond in anger as Joseph has. We may try to act out in kindness, but even in the midst of that, our emotions are going to be the sign, they're going to be the clue to how we're feeling. And throughout the story, Joseph is wrestling with what he's going to do. He's wrestling with how to respond to the people that have hurt him so much. And so Joseph is still testing them. He's still trying to see what they're going to do, what his brothers, the people who have hurt him, how they're going to live, how they're going to respond. And so he offers Benjamin, the youngest, his own brother, five times more food than anybody else. So he basically has this huge turkey leg. He has tons of sides. He has like a full pumpkin pie. He's got everything. When his brothers, I mean, they, they have more food than they've ever experienced in the midst of famine. But Benjamin is shown this special kindness. And maybe if you're following along, it's, it's the reason that Joseph, had been hated by his brothers. It's that favoritism. And so as he shows this favoritism to Benjamin, Joseph is testing to see how his brothers will respond. And yet they just keep eating. They, they barely even notice that anything has happened. They keep eating. But the story's not over yet. Joseph is still testing his brothers. He's still overcome with emotion. He can't decide what he's going to do. And so he makes a final exam of sorts. When I was going to school, um, specifically at Denver Seminary, those final exams were a doozy. As much as you studied, as much as you prepped, as much as you crammed the knowledge into your head, there would always be questions on there that it would be like, we never talked about that in class. I don't know if you've ever experienced about that in school. But Joseph wants to see what happens when... Benjamin is put in the same situation that he has. And so he concocts a plan. He sends them off again with more food than they can carry, food enough for them, for their families. They probably have a plethora of kids at this point. This is a huge household. So he sends them off all this food, once again returns the money that they had brought, returns everything to them, and puts his silver cup, the cup that he drank out of each day, the cup that he was given when he was brought in a position of power, made of pure silver, and he puts it in Benjamin's sack of food and sends them off on their way. And as they get a cup, maybe a couple miles, doesn't say how far, but it's soon after, he sends out his stewards once again to stop them in their tracks. I think this is a lot like I don't know if you've ever been driving. Maybe you're in a hurry to get to work or to pick up your kids from school. And you see that light in the the rearview mirror. We all know. And they think everything's going okay. Everything's going great. But yet they're stopped a couple miles outside of Egypt. And accused of stealing. Accused not only of taking the money, but accused of taking the silver cup. And they don't even know how to respond. They've been showed this amazing kindness. They've experienced interrogation. Now they're being accused once again. They've experienced such a whirlwind just trying to feed their families. And so they respond. This is in 44 verses 7 and 8. And it says, But they said, they're responding to the stewards, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. We didn't take that when we could have easily. So why now would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? Why now would they steal? It's a great question. But yet, they're not the ones in the position of power anymore. Joseph is. And so he has them brought back. And as they work down from the oldest to the youngest, cutting through those sacks, seeing where they're hiding the cup, they get to Benjamin. Benjamin, this young teenager, has the cup. And all of his brothers don't know what to do. They, you have to be expecting that they easily, they've already been in prison for three days. They're going to be thrown into prison again. Benjamin is going to be hurt if not taken. Or at worst, they may die. They may get killed They don't know what this ruler over Egypt, this ruler that has shown them kindness, anger, that has recused himself. They don't know how this, honestly, this unstable person to them has, how how is this person going to respond? And so once again, once again, we see Judah. Judah, the one who had decided in the first place to sell his own brother into slavery. We see Judah step up. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Hunger Games series, but I think this interaction is so clearly a parallel of Katniss stepping in the place of her sister. If you're not familiar, it's a book series and subsequent movies that, where in this dystopian society, there's the capital in the middle and twelve surrounding districts, and year after year after year, due to a rebellion of the districts against the ruling body of the capital. They have this Hunger Games where two young adults, teenagers from each district, a boy and a girl, are sent to a death match. (laughs) And all of the rest of the community watches. There's bets placed. This is a sport for them. And in the poorest of the poor district, District 12, where Katniss and her sister Primrose live, Primrose, this young girl, probably 11, 12, is one of the ones that's picked in the lottery to represent their district. And there's an amazing sequence in the movie where you can see Katniss. You can see in her eyes that she's already long determined what she was going to do. And she throws up her hand and volunteers herself as tribute in the place of her sister, knowing basically that she's going to die on behalf of her sister. And it's the same thing that Judah does. Judah steps up in front of his brothers, in front of this man, this ruler over Egypt, and tells the long story of what they've gone through, of how their father's doing, of what they've traveled. They've come from far away. The money has been returned. We return again. You show us such great kindness, offering us this banquet, this food that we've never experienced before. We go out, we leave again, the money is returned again. And now we're put before you. We lay ourselves before you. We, we don't know what to do, but I know that I can't go back and face my father if Benjamin is not there. I can't go back and see the pain that it would cause my dad, the pain that he's experienced once before. And in his mind, he doesn't say it, but in his mind he can say, because of me. The pain that I've caused my dad in hurting my brother, the pain that I've caused in shipping my brother to Egypt to be a slave, the brother who I think presumably is dead now. I can't face my father knowing that there's something that I could have done to save Benjamin. And so he says this, this is 44 verses 34, excuse me, 33 and 34. He says, now then, Please let your servant, me, remain here as the Lord's slave in the place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. And Judah volunteers himself as tribute. (laughs) He volunteers for, for his youngest brother, And offers himself up to whatever this ruler over Egypt has in mind for him. He suggests servanthood, but he knew that he was probably facing his death. And it's at that point that Joseph knows what he's going to do. You see, Joseph had experienced so much pain, so much hardship. His life had been put on a completely different trajectory than he ever imagined. He envisioned for himself a life of security and safety, of love from his father, of love above his other brothers. Joseph never envisioned that his life would take a completely left turn to lead him to slavery, to prison, to being lost and forgotten in a dungeon. Joseph knows what he's going to do. And so he removes everybody else from that room all of the servants, all of his stewards, everybody else. And finally, finally, it's just him and his brothers face to face. He is going to finally have his revenge. He can finally do what he's probably dreamed about year after year, sitting in a dark cell, being forgotten. He's finally the one with the power. And so he sends everybody out and begins to sob, begins to weep, begins to cry like he's never before. And he says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still living in the midst of tears, he can only utter out these words that he reveals himself to be Joseph. How's our dad? How's our dad? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified of this presence. This word terrified isn't, isn't just simple fear. Isn't like a jump scare in a scary movie. This word terrified, they're beside themselves. They're in agony. They're in fear. They know that even though this is their brother, he's the one now with the power. He's the one now that can change the course of their lives. He's the one now that can keep them all as servants, keep them all as slaves, hurt Benjamin, bring pain to them the same way that he, that they had brought pain to him. He could kill them all right then and there. He can do whatever he wants to. So they're terrified. Rightfully so. But Joseph, Joseph has seen the bigger picture. He goes on to recount to his brothers, to the people that he is yet to forgive, the amazing journey he's had since they last saw him. The amazing experience he has had, that God has led him, that God has grown him. God has developed in him a perseverance and a humility beyond anything that he would have imagined. His life has changed, but his life had changed even in the midst of all of that bad stuff, for the better. God had used Joseph to re- recount Pharaoh's dreams, to interpret them. He's put him all over Egypt. He saved hundreds, thousands of lives. He saved the known world at that time, basically. And so he forgives. Joseph sees the bigger picture. Joseph sees that g- what God can do, even in the midst of situations where we feel forgotten. Joseph has his revenge because forgiveness is the best revenge. Forgiveness is the best revenge. You see, it's only when Joseph finally realizes finally turns to God, finally looks at the bigger picture, finally realizes that now he is in a position of power to not only save the Egyptians, to save the people that come to him, but save his own brothers, save his family, save his father. He can now see that his brothers have changed. He can now see that Judah, the one who sold him into slavery, is now the one who takes the place of Benjamin. Joseph sees the bigger picture and makes forgiveness his revenge. Because it is the best option, not only for Joseph, not only for people in the Bible, but for everyone, for you, for me. Forgiveness can be our revenge, too. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, sure, Sawyer, that's a great idea for church on a Sunday morning. That's a great thing to say in church because forgiveness is a nice thing to do. It's what we're called to do as Christians but you don't know the pain that I've experienced. You don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know the life that I've lived because that person chose to hurt me. And you know what? I don't. I don't know the experience that you've had in your life. And I'm sorry that that has happened to you. But just as Joseph realizes that God is in the midst of his life and his situation, God is in the midst of yours. And adding pain and hurt to an already painful and hurt-filled situation is only—it's only going to make things worse. So choose forgiveness. But you may be saying, "Okay, that—that's great. I, 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 the pain I experienced is real. I want to choose forgiveness." But those people—the people that have hurt us, the people that have chose to do bad things to us—they haven't changed. They haven't said they're sorry. They haven't been forced to apologize. They have. They may not even know what they've done. They're living a life that's totally opposite of how they've interacted with me. How can I forgive them when they don't know that the pain of the pain that I've experienced? But I want to challenge you to think that forgiveness has a lot more to do with us than it necessarily has to do with the people who have hurt us. Because when we're hurt, when we've experienced pain, when things that have been done to us that completely changed the course of our life, our life changes with it. Because often when we hold on to pain, when we hold on to hardship, when we hold on to the negative things that experienced, have been experienced, have been done to us, they become our identity. They not only become events to our past, but they become how we live now in the present. I am a victim. I have been hurt. I am damaged goods. I am less than I am not worthy. These become the ways that we live our life, the ways that we go out day after day. They might be in our past, but surely they affect our present. But forgiveness can change that. Forgiveness allows us, independent of what the other person is doing, To change how we are living. To change where we place our identity. Forgiveness has a lot more to do with us than it does the other person. Lewis Smides had something to say about forgiveness. And I think it's so true. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. And discover that that prisoner was you. Because forgiveness, our forgiveness is not conditional on the people who have hurt us. It's conditional on us. We have the choice to make. We have the choice to live a new identity, to live a God-given identity, to live into who God says we are, not who other people say we are. We can be set free. And finally, I don't know about you, but that sounds really good. That sounds really good for us. But maybe if you're sitting there, being really honest with yourself, you're saying, forgiveness is good for me, but I want that other person to be punished. I want them to experience the pain that I've experienced. I want them to get a little idea of the change that has happened in my life. I want justice. And I think if you're in that place right now, you maybe understand the experience that God has undergone. Have you ever thought about that? It's a really easy thing to say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But have you ever thought about what that looks like? That God in the midst of our active rejection, of our active pushing aside, of our active negativity, God chooses to forgive. God chose to make a way to send his one and only son to live a perfect life, to die a perfect le- death, and rise again, conquering the sin, the pain, the hardship that has been caused towards him. God chose to forgive while we were still sinners, while we were actively choosing something other than him, while we were causing God pain, God chose to love us. Just like Joseph, it's only, it's only when we see what God has done that we can make the choice to forgive. It's only when we look at the forgiveness so evident of Jesus dying on a cross for a death he didn't deserve, that we can actually start to take those steps towards forgiveness. It's only when we look to God and we realize how much we have been forgiven that we can forgive others. Back in October of 2006, long before a shooting every week, that we experience day after day. One of the first ones that I remember in recent history happened. In the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, in Lancaster County, where there's the largest population of Amish people, a shooting happened. You see, Amish people are Christians. They follow God. They seek to live a life that's faithful to God. But they seek to do that by separating themselves out from the rest of society trying to limit themselves from the effects of technology and the painful negativity of society at large. And so they separate themselves out and try to live faithfully to what God calls them to. But even in the midst of that community, a community that's separated from technology, that tries to separate themselves from the pain and hardship of modern day life, their milkman, the man who delivered milk to their community, Carl Roberts IV, Came in one October 2nd, barricaded himself in a schoolhouse with 10 school-age girls, 6 to 13 years old. And puts them through a hostage situation, berates them, beats them, and ends up shooting 8 of them, killing 5 school-age girls, and then committing suicide. In the midst of of, uh, reality now that we live in in 2018, where we're faced with shootings day after day after day, that may seem easy to dismiss as just another shooting, just another bad situation, just another bad aspect of our society. But you see, it's so significant because of how that community responded, how that community chose to forgive Because the story of the nickel mine shooting isn't the violence that happened. Isn't the atrocity of a man choosing to shoot schoolgirls. Why people still talk about that today is how those Amish people decided to forgive. One of the grandfathers of the children being, excuse me, one of the grandfathers being interviewed, who was one of the grandfathers of the, one of the girls who was killed, said on on national news, we cannot think evil of this man. This man who had just murdered his own granddaughter. Another man who was interviewed say, nobody in the community wants to show anything but kindness to the family of the man who committed these atrocities. They backed up their words with action. They surrounded the wife and the mother of the gunman, made food for them, prayed with them, and over 30 individuals from the Amish community attended the funeral for the gunmen who had just days earlier shot their own daughters. That's what forgiveness looks like. That's what radical forgiveness can look like when we look to God and see how God would respond in the situation. That's what it looks like to make forgiveness our revenge. Because friends, forgiveness is the best revenge. At the beginning, I asked you to think about one individual. And as the band comes back up, I want you to once again return that person to your mind. Return that person to your mind, whoever that may be. Somebody from a couple days ago, somebody from when you were a child, decades ago, like in Joseph's situation. Return that person to your mind. And during this next song about forgiveness of what it looks like to choose forgiveness, I want you to think about that person. And not only think about that person, but think about what you're going to do to take a step towards forgiveness. It may look like actually going to that person today, this afternoon, and saying, I forgive you. It may be taking a first step towards forgiveness, talking to somebody else about a situation that you've kept deep within inside yourself, seeking out counseling, actively working through the pain that you've experienced. It may be sending a text, send a, calling somebody on the phone, but don't let it stay here. Don't let it stay in this room. The thoughts that you have, the challenge to forgive. Because as Christians, when we look at the person and love of Jesus, dying on a cross, making a way so that we can be forgiven. We have no other choice but to forgive, friends, and make forgiveness, yes, forgiveness, our revenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, from the story of Joseph, we see what it looks like to choose forgiveness Even when we're put into situations where we face the same people that have hurt us, that have caused us so much pain and so much agony, God, Joseph, chose to forgive. And for these people in this room, you know their hearts. You know that person that they're thinking about. You know what they've experienced, God. Work mightily in these people's lives. Let us be known as people not only who follow Jesus, but that people that live a life that live a life of forgiveness and live a life that Jesus did. Surround people who are struggling and coming to terms with the pain that they've experienced. Let them know that they're loved, that they're cared for, and then most importantly, that you love and care for them. If there's somebody in this room who this morning has never accepted your forgiveness, God, and never acknowledged the pain that they've caused to you, surround them with their love, and let them know that they can easily accept that right now in this moment, God. And as we sing this next song, allow it to change our hearts. Allow it to lead us into action. Lead us to the people that you have for us. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.